Welcome everyone, this is Carlos here at SeedCamp HQ with a very special guest, uh, one of the two founders of SeedCamp, Saul Klein. Uh, Saul Klein is not only a personal mentor, has helped me with understanding a lot of core concepts like positioning, messaging, and the important therein, and we're going to cover that a little bit later. But also, he has been uh, both an investor and a founder, um, and with that brings a knowledge of, of both sides of the table. So we're going to start off, as we always do, understanding the person um, from the origins and what they did during college and what they did immediately right after. So Saul, welcome. Hi. What was the first thing you did right after college? What did you study and what did you do the first thing you did after you graduated? Well, obviously, as someone from the technology industry, I studied English literature in college. And honestly, when I left college in 1992, I pretty much had no idea what I wanted to do. I think in my ideal world, I would have been a writer or written and produced plays, which I'd done at university. But honestly, when I came out of college, A, the job market it was really bad. So unemployment rates were uh, in the UK at the time, and I think probably across Europe, maybe not as bad as they are in some European countries today, but pretty much as bad. And the idea of having a non-vocational degree, which I did, you know, I hadn't studied law or accountancy uh, or medicine like my parents would have liked. So, and I really wasn't interested in going to join a FMCG or a bank or a consulting firm, which was sort of the typical career paths after university. So I pretty much had no clue about what I wanted to do. And I actually ended up um, spending a few months after college living with uh, a friend of mine, uh, pursuing, you know, writing, and sort of, I guess, the creative industries, which is what I'd been doing at university, she ended up doing really well. Mm. Um, Sue Perkins, who mm. is now, uh, you know, on, on TV and the Great British Bake Off and all that kind of stuff. And mm. I ended up, you know, not really knowing which, which career path to go in, but where I went, Initially, was I took a, a, a an unpaid job at the Observer, working on the news desk, doing research because I thought if no one will pay me to write, at least I'll go and sort of be at a newspaper and they produce stuff every day. And then when it was sort of clear to me that actually not writing, that writing at a newspaper really wasn't I wasn't going to get to write anything for the newspaper, probably for about two or three years, and I'm pretty impatient. I sort of got another unpaid job at the Telegraph in a team that was working on the commercial side. And it was probably the first time I appreciated that the world of, you know, sort of commercial world could be creative and interesting because the job that we were doing there at the Telegraph was 
basically creating new sections of the newspaper which we could get underwritten by advertisers. And the first thing that we created was uh, fantasy football, um, which went really well. And, um, you know, that sort of made me see that actually I could do something on the commercial side that could be creative as well. Mm. There's this book that I read recently um, by Sam Harris, who is a, a journalist, and he talks about how a lot of the lessons he learned were from these hard-ass editors on the floor of the journalistic and, and TV. And he said a lot of the lessons around the brevity and the core of the message and the focus of the message. Do you have any anecdotes like that? Any anecdotes of kind of like your early days in Observant Telegraph where, you know, a boss or somebody kind of drove home a couple points that you've now taken? I think there were sort of three or four early learnings I had at the Telegraph. And I was only there for a couple of years. You know, I learned a huge amount about market research from... Um, the, the, the woman on, on my team who ran market research and you know basically to sell uh, the newspaper to an advertiser you had to you know explain to an advertiser why the Telegraph was a better place to put their ad than say the Guardian or the Times and you would do that based on data and it was a really good early lesson of using data to sort of build an argument and tell a story so I learned a lot from that. Um, I learned uh, within the first 18 months of being at the Telegraph, there was a massive price war between the Times and the Telegraph. And Rupert Murdoch, who owned the Times, dropped the price of the Times to 10p a copy, mm. which, you know, even in those days was just like a crazy low price. And he did it at a time when the price of newsprint was going up. So it was basically an incredibly economically destructive move. Mm. And as a result, you know, the guy who was the CEO at the, the Telegraph had to make uh, about 100 people redundant. And I remember, you know, there were maybe 300 people on my floor in the commercial team and 100 people lost their jobs one afternoon and just, you know, seeing very early on in my working life, you know, people who the, the day or the week before had been your colleagues, who you'd had lunch with, who you, you went to the smoking room with, because in those days there was a smoking room, and, uh, you know, to lose their jobs and sort of understand, like, the fragility of, of work. And mm. that was a big lesson. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I think another big lesson I learned was around politics. So, you know, we'd come up with this idea, my colleague and I, to do fantasy football, and it, it went uh, it went pretty well, and our, our boss and the guy who was running the paper really liked it. But the marketing director really didn't like that it wasn't coming from their group. Mm. And you know, not being naive and not sort of understanding how institutions worked, you know, I went and gave a presentation with my colleague to the CEO about where we thought we should take fantasy football as the next step. The internet was just coming along. We just thought, hey, it'd be cool if you could do it online. And, 
you know, we thought there was a cross-platform opportunity. Mm. We could do stuff on radio, on TV, and we made this presentation. We were all really excited, and the CEO really liked it, and he picks up the phone, and he calls the marketing director, and he's like, hey, you should meet these guys. They're going to come down and see you. And, you know, we went down to see the marketing director and, you know, it was the first time I'd seen and he hated the veins in someone's <laughs> neck look like they're about to explode. And I was told in no uncertain terms that, you know, I should go back to my small corner and, and uh, mind my own business. Um, and that probably taught me something I probably already knew very early on that I wasn't that well suited to working in large organizations. So, so what was the first small organization that you moved on to after the Telegraph then? Well, I was hired by Ogilvy's out of the Telegraph to help them start what we call their sort of digital communications practice mm. because it was a time when right, you know, 94, 95 clients like Unilever and Guinness were starting to ask agencies like Ogilvy's and others like, you know, what are we going to do with these interactive TV trials like the 9X and Bell Atlantic, these are sort of the baby bells, mm. or BT are, are doing for 5,000 people in Chelmsford. Mm. And, you know, I went and again presented to a conference in New York where Unilever got all of their agencies to come from all around the world to present to them about what they should do with interactive TV and my recommendation was forget about interactive TV, go straight to the internet. And you know, coming back to my bosses and thinking, oh that's good advice. I'm like, what are you what are you doing? The client asked us what interactive TV we should be doing. You don't totally like question the brief to the degree that you change the whole medium. So I like, you know, I also realized that while Ogilvy's was amazing and I learned an enormous amount, again, probably being at a small place would be better. And Ogilvy's and WPP were sponsors of the Media Lab at the time. Mm. And I saw a team at the Media Lab that was working on technology I thought was really interesting, personalization, technology or, or what they called autonomous agents mm. so AI and machine learning mm. um, and I thought wow this is really cool because you know if you could personalize the way people received information surely that's how newspaper how media is going to be and how brands are going to be and I just yeah. went and spoke to these guys and said you know as sponsors of the Media Lab, we were entitled to take any code developed at the Media Lab and commercialize it. So my first thought was, could we take and commercialize this code at Ogilvy's and WPP on behalf of our clients? But when I first met you know, the, the team that was working inside the Media Lab, they said, well, actually, we're about to leave this summer, and we're going to start a company with our professor and we've got a, a VC firm, it was actually Atlas, Christopher Sprague, who was running Atlas in Boston, mm. gonna fund this company and, you know, why didn't you come and join us? And I thought, why not? Mm. Because in those days, this was sort of 95, I'd sort of felt like Europe was not very entrepreneurial, London was not very entrepreneurial, 
you know, I, I tried to be entrepreneurial at the Telegraph, I tried to be entrepreneurial at Ogilvy's and succeeded on, on a certain level, but it was clear to me actually, you know, at the Telegraph and at Ogilvy's having at the Telegraph been exposed to sort of Netscape when it was Mosaic Communications mm. on Castro and 40 people mm. and without a CEO. Mm. Um, and just seeing what it was like to be in that office when mm. there were like 40 people mm. and they were shipping the 1-0 of the Netscape Navigator the day we arrived and you know Wired was in its first three or four issues and you know and then um, seeing at, at Ogilvy's what was going on at the Media Lab it was clear to me I had to be in either Boston or San Francisco to really be where it was going no. on. So what was that like? What was that, I mean, what, what, what was that sort of first day on the new gig? I mean, it was crazy because, you know, I was a 23 or four year old who was the VP of marketing for, you know, I don't know, a six person startup in venture back startup that spun out of the media lab at Cambridge. And, you know, we were, meeting with a Yahoo of 30, 40 people that was run still by Jerry Yang and, you know, talking to both Barnes and Noble or, or Amazon about licensing out collaborative filtering engines so they could say people who bought this book would also buy that book. And what was the name of the company? Firefly. Firefly. And, um, you know, you just sort of, like anyone involved in startups would know, you know, all of a sudden you were just in this vortex and nothing outside of this vortex existed, but it was like at the beginning of, of all, of, you know, the internet really. And it was, it was crazy and it was amazing. And, you know, no one knew what they were doing. And, you know, we were all just sort of making it up as we went along, everyone. Mm. I mean, the investors, the bankers, mm. you know, the startups, everyone. Mm. But it was, yeah, it was unbelievably interesting and inspiring and, you know, being there and having that experience firsthand, you know, at that phase of all of this stuff was, was just unbelievable, mm. really. So if, if we pause the Firefly journey and, and take a quick step backwards to, towards your Ogilvy days and maybe kind of revisiting the Telegraph and Observer, there's a lot of things that I know that you work with founders on. Um, regarding creative uh, messaging, briefs, um, uh, storyboarding, print ads, and presumably some of that expertise comes from your time during the, those periods. Um, for those that are listening that perhaps don't have an understanding of, like, for example, what is a brief and, and how do you structure it and how do you come up with it so that an Ogilvy, for example, can give you something. Um, what, maybe you can walk through like the elements of something is if someone's considering this for the first time. Sure, I mean, I, I think, Quite honestly, while I obviously learned a lot, I think you're right about newspapers are, uh, are all about, you know, taking complicated information or information that's moving or changing fast and packaging it in a way that is very digestible and understandable for people. I mean, that's the job of a newspaper and advertising you know, is in a way even more succinct in that it's, you know, typically, you know, if it's video or 
TV, it's like a 30 second format. If it's radio, it's a 15 to 30 second format. If it's a print or a billboard, it's a static image. So it's really distilling down to its essence complicated ideas. But I think, you know, quite honestly, that's what I got out of literature and my, my degree, a lot of the sort of the underlying interests or sort of expertise in, you know, how do you think about communication? How do you think about analyzing what words or images mean, what they mean to people? Mm. I mean, that's sort of what literature, you know, studying mm. literature is about. Mm. You know, how does it fit into its historical or philosophical or political context? But I think, you know, what became very clear to me early on was, you know, within the technology industry, within the industry of innovation, that was a very sort of fundamental and important skill set. And I think, you know, it's only become more important over time. And, you know, the fusion of the, the sort of the technology skills, the design skills, the storytelling skills, the operational skills, I think are three or four of the the core dimensions to sort of a successful startup. And obviously, you know, Apple has sort of always mastered the arts. Mm. You know, Steve Jobs sort of, you know, famously pictured in front of a, a sort of a, the crossroads of arts, the arts and the sciences and, you know, technology and storytelling. And I think, you know, Apple have clearly sort of elevated the fusion of these skill sets to to its sort of highest level, but, you know, you and I have spoken about this a lot over the years, you know, I think one of the most fundamental things starts with the idea of positioning. And, you know, we've both read the Jack Trout's book mm. on positioning and, you know, the analogy of, you know, a market is like a box inside someone's head. And if the market exists like a car, that box is crowded with five or 10 or 15 other cars. So you've got two choices. Either you bring a new car into the same box, but that car is so radically different, mm. like a Tesla, you know, that it can exist in the same box. Or you create a new box and you say, you know, it's a self-driving car or it's an electric car, which is not an entirely new box, but it's a subtly different box. And you're the first car in that box. So I think, you know, the first and most important thing that only you can do, you being the team, is sort of truly understand, you know, who you are, what markets you exist in, and... You know, if you're in a market with lots of other people, which is not necessarily a bad thing because mm -hmm. it means there's a big market, um, how you are unique within that market. Mm -hmm. And within that market, you know, what are the what are the the, the features that you may have within that market mm -hmm. that make you something that a valuable part of that market wants that no one else can do. And I think if you are able to go through those steps, then actually writing the brief of explaining who you are, what you make, you know, why you're different is actually pretty easy. 
And then it's a case of working with people who, in the same way that the best developers or best designers, you know, have kind of Jedi magic around what they do, mm. you know, the best communicators have the same around what they do. But unless you can bring to the table a very profound understanding of like, this is what we do, this is who we do it for, this is why we're different, mm. it's very, very hard to get the best out of anyone. I mean, you could be working with the best agencies, mm. the smartest creative people in the world, but if you don't really know who you are or what you're doing, it doesn't help. I mean, you look at Microsoft's ads for some of their products, they're working with the best agencies on the planet, but, you know, it's still, you still don't know what it is that they're selling, mm. you know, um, and, you know, they're an example with, you know, there are hundreds of examples. There's way more bad communication mm. than there is good communication. So if we bring that point back to where we left off in, in your story in Firefly, which was the first startup, either Firefly or, or thereafter, that you worked in where you felt like that came clearly from the management team and that you understood it as either part of the management team or as part of the early employee base, what that was to the point where you would be able to communicate it to, to um, a Jedi communicator if, if you were called think, to do so? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And for me, like... That, that I, I know exactly when that was. It was Skype. And, you know, Skype, uh, I mean, I came to Skype from being the founder and CEO of, you know, what was to become Love Film. So I was running my own startup that was doing fine. And then my partner, well, my former partner, Danny Reimer, who had invested in us at Love Film, you know, mentioned to me that he was... Uh, he met these guys, uh, Nicholas and Yanis, who was starting, who had started Skype, and he was looking at trying to make an investment. And what did I think? And I downloaded the product, and I remember, you know, I'd only had that experience once before, was when I downloaded Netscape, and just mm. thinking, oh my god, this is a fucking unbelievable product. Mm. Um, and I, you know, you just knew like this was a sort of a rocket ship on the way to the moon because it was just brilliantly executed from a product perspective and you know I started talking to Nicholas and he wanted me to come and join to run marketing and I'm like I've got a company you know a company to run and you know but it was obvious to me like you know I had to do this and you know we hired Simon Harbour to take over from me but you know one of the things in terms of doing the marketing job at Skype which a lot of people are like what are you doing you're like the founder and CEO of a company, now you're going to be like the VP of marketing and go work for someone else. And, you know, for me, like the things that were really compelling about Skype, other than the product, is one, this felt to me like the first non-West Coast global consumer internet company, mm. and one that could be born in London and Europe, which was exciting to me because that's where I was. And I felt like that was something that could happen too. I'd never met founders who clearly believed in the value of, never mind marketing, but product and design as much as these guys. So I think when we had 50 people at Skype, we had 10 people in usability, which was to me like, what, 20% of the people are like in 
UX and creative and usability. I mean, that showed that these guys understood, you know, the level of design polish and communication polish. And then, you know, I was also just given a, a completely blank piece of paper. And the first real major thing that I did was to work with, you know, some great creatives. You know, my friend Jason Goodman was, you know, just getting Albion off the ground then. And we worked, I'd introduced Jason to Nicholas. And so we worked with, with Albion to sort of take the positioning of Skype from something that was very utilitarian. You know, the tagline when I joined was P2P telephony that just works or that works, something like that, to the whole world can talk for free. And, you know, we turned something, the whole world can talk for free is still very utilitarian. I mean, it says what the product does. Yeah. It's aspirational in that, you know, okay, we've only got 50 or 100 million users, but one day we can see a world where everyone would use this because it just makes sense. Why wouldn't you if you can talk for free? Yeah. But it's also something that you could just say to the people we were trying to make sure would want to use this, like mothers and grandma, grandfathers and kids. It's like, well, why would you use this thing? You're going to like plug a headset into your computer and walk around talking into your computer? Well, yeah. it's because I can talk for free. So, you know, to me, that was sort of the first time I had and seen that experience. And also the other thing that was really interesting from a marketing perspective at Skype is that, you know, we were simultaneously running a marketing operation in sort of 20 different countries, you know, in a, in a, in a company that was less than two or three years old. And, you know, again, that was not a, that to me was a really interesting new challenge that was worth not being a CEO for. Yeah. If we go back to that moment where the whole world talks for free as a communication simplification of what, what it did. And as you mentioned earlier, you, you transitioned from the leader of an organization where it's up to you really whether you take any, any colleagues feedback or not, but ultimately the buck stops with you from a communications point of view. And you've moved over to this organization where you have other people who've been working on that project and have opinions. And the message that they were communicating was probably born out of that group. What was that moment when you came up with that title? And what was that, that experience like? Was it like um, a, a sort of a Hail Mary moment where it was like, this is going to be the new way that we're going to communicate? Or was it an iterative process with a lot of arguments uh, around uh, sort of the, the old thinking and then you bringing in a fresh new perspective on how to communicate that. How did that play well, out? Well, I, I mean, firstly, you know, I didn't come up with the tagline. Mm. I don't even know who did come up with the tagline. Mm. Um, it was probably someone at Albion. Mm. Um, and, you know, all of this is about, and I think actually, ironically, the place I've learned the most about working together as a team uh, is within a partnership, you know, at Index, is that, you know, while, you know, obviously organizations have structure and it makes sense in a certain size of organization that someone has to sort of be the tiebreaker and say, you know, I've listened to everyone's opinion and mm. this is what we're going to do. 
you know, which is ultimately what a CEO ends up doing. Um, you know, what, what was really clear to me at, at a place like, like Skype, and then, you know, clearer to me at a place like Index, and it's sort of a, an organizational model that I, I try and respect, is that, you know, the best organizations are ones where people are really clear on, on what their roles and responsibilities are, they're accountable for it, and then you just let people get on and, and do it. So, um, you know, at a certain level, you have to start having people who are specialists or at least own areas of specialization. And I think, you know, Skype got to that point where they felt like we need someone to own marketing. And, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, obviously I would take other people's opinions and I would really value, you know, Nicholas and Yanis's and, you know, Malta, who was the creative director, and Rodrigo, who's like the design director, and Carter, who's running, you know, the Windows client, and blah, blah, blah. You'd, you know, you listen to people's opinions because, you know, other people have to make stuff or people have to sell stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, you feel empowered to like, this is my area, this is what I do. And in the same way that I will have an opinion on product or biz dev strategy. And I think, you know, Nicholas was also really clear that he wanted entrepreneurs to be running functions. He mm. just didn't want functional people running functions. And I actually think that's kind of how companies scale. And it's still one of the things we're kind of wrestling with in Europe is we've, you know, we've got a much broader and deeper pool, both of specialists and entrepreneurs now, but ultimately the biggest companies get built by collections of entrepreneurs, mm. not just sort of an entrepreneur and a bunch of specialists. Mm. That's a very good point. So when you moved um, from Skype to your next um, next gig, was it um, that when you moved straight into investments? Or was that when you joined well, Index? Well, yeah, I joined Index initially as a venture partner. Mm. And, you know, the first thing that I pitched at Index was Seedcare. Mm. Um, and, yeah, so... Why was that? Why, what was... Maybe some people don't know the, the history of, of Seedcamp. Um, maybe you can walk us back into the 2007 years and kind of what happened there and also the motivation behind going from um, you know, the, the, the founder role to uh, a more sort of investor role. Yeah, I, it's funny because Blogger has a spam problem. And my blog is still on Blogger. Mm. And it's like 13 years old, my blog now. Mm. So I get I get spam comments from Blogger. And last weekend, I got a spam comments to the original post I wrote in February 2007, which was called Why Europe, which was sort of the beginning of what became the, sort of the, the seed camp idea. And I reposted it. On, on Twitter this weekend, so you know, it forced me to sort of re relook at some of this stuff. But you know, the original thinking was, you know, the whole experience of Skype and also obviously of being a big part of building Love Film, um, you know, along with William Reeve and Alex Chesterman and you know Adam Falcon and a whole bunch of other people who 
in various configurations were involved on the video island or the screen select or the love films like Ray and Bosher, you know, was realizing and, and having had that sort of the, the Netscape, Firefly, Microsoft experience up front in the US, there was that, you know, seeing a company of Skype scale, stature and capability being born in Estonia, you know, with a Dane and a Swede based in London, where most of our initial growth was in Taiwan, Poland, Brazil, you know, China, and, and, and you know, the US was never more than 10% of our volume or 20% of our revenue, sort of made me feel like, you know, we're at the big, you know, we're at a, a turning point in terms of Europe or the UK or, you know, the ability of, of really viable, impactful startups that can have a global impact being able to be built outside of the US. Mm. And a friend of mine, John Borthwick, who started Betaworks, mm. had, was kind of bit, starting up Betaworks and he sort of passed through London because him and his family had taken a little bit of a sabbatical in Italy and he was telling me about this new thing called Y Combinator. Mm. I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. It's like, why the hell don't we have something like that in Europe? In fact, we need it way more in Europe than they need it in the US. And it was, I was very lucky when I started Love Film in that, you know, I had a network from the US, you know, Danny, who had just come to London to start Index, you know, I knew him when he was a banker at H&Q. He pitched to us to do you know, take Firefly public. And, you know, I, for me, it's never easy to raise money, but I had a better than average chance of raising money because I had some experience. I knew people mm. to raise money from. I'd been through it before, but I thought like, if you've never done this, like, what the hell are you going to do? Never mind if you're in London, what if you're like in Estonia? And, mm. and you know, that was sort of the genesis uh, of like how we just sort of open this up and sort of create more of a network and more of an ecosystem, more of a community. And actually, the first thing I did were these open coffee clubs across the yeah, road. I remember those from Index, yeah. and you know some of the first people who came there. I remember Andy and Andy McLaughlin coming from from you know a huddle, yeah. and I mean all sorts all sorts of people. And then you know at, at the future of web apps events, Rashma was introduced to me by Mike Harrington and, you know, we just started talking about this and, you know, I wrote this blog post and I thought, you know, why don't we try to put an event together and get a bunch of mentors and have startups apply and, you know, we raised over the summer seed camp one and, you know, the rest of the story because you've been building it <laughs> for the last yeah. six or seven years. Yeah, no, it's been a great story. And, you know, it's, it's also thanks to, to mentors like you and, and you know, your, your experience is spanning obviously both the time that you were in, in media, but also the time that you were a founder. But then, you, you know, you've been an investor now for quite a while. And I want to hear, I want to sort of... Only 16 years. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I definitely want to touch to kind of what you're doing now, but maybe, maybe you can give us a quick sort of review of kind of the, your time at Index. And, and maybe one way that we can do that is, 
you know, you went through some of the best companies, um, invested in some of the best companies, but also met a lot of founders that for whatever reason, it wasn't appropriate for Index to invest. And I'm just curious, what was the biggest mistake you've seen founders uh, at that stage commit over and over again that jeopardized their ability to either raise money or to conquer the market that they set out to conquer? Mm, I don't know. I mean, you know, one thing is for certain in venture, you know, when you look at the the, the numbers underlying venture, uh, or at least the data that the best LPs have, and I think with that permission, Chris Dixon blogged about this in the last 12 to 18 months, which mm. is the, sort of the Horsley Bridge data, which and he wrote a blog post about, he talked about the Babe Ruth effect. Mm. And, you know, if, as an investor, you're always looking for the outliers. You know, you're looking for the companies that can return your fund. Uh, and to return a fund, even if it's a small fund, you know, uh, given the level of ownership you can get. You know, even if you're managing a fund of 30, 50, 80 million, uh, if you're going to have ownership of 5 to 10%, you have to be investing in companies that are capable of exits of mm. approaching half a billion dollars. Now, you know, the founder, therefore, has to be pursuing obviously a market that is big enough to sustain a company exiting uh, or going public at those kind of numbers. And then obviously you have to look for founders who are you know, not just able to build product, but able to hire, tell a story, raise money, such that they can sort of navigate the incredibly tricky waters you know, between a seed or an early stage and and that sort of half a billion plus stage. And I think there have been 15 venture-backed unicorns in London in the last 10, 15 years. And between local globe and, and index, you know, we've been involved in nine out of 10. And, you know, the thing that you see in all of those situations, never mind the ones in London, but the ones I've seen outside of London and through index is that, you know, the founders have to be able to visualize, you know, not an exit, because you never want founders to visualize an exit, but you have to, they have to be able to visualize what does that big look like? And then, you know, work their way back to, you know, what are the necessary steps that you take, but if you can't envisage and communicate, you know, that scale of outcome, you know, how the hell are you ever going to make it there? You know, like if you don't know that there's a top of the mountain, you know, you're never going to bother climbing it. Or so if you're not excited to find out, yeah. you know, what's at the top of the mountain, or like, I've no idea what's at the top of the mountain, but the view's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah. like, how are you going to motivate people? to go up there with you. Yeah. And I think that that is something that you often see lacking in in founders and founding teams in Europe mm. uh, and, 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 and in Israel. But I think at least you did 10 years ago, mm. even five years ago. But, you know, now 
I don't think you see that as much. You know, we still don't have people who will, you know, talk about a food business, uh, but, you know, in their last slide saying, and by doing this, we're going to end the 2000 year, you know, process of agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> that level of like, we're going to just change history, not just an industry, yeah. you know, which you will routinely see in Silicon Valley and anyone who see the HBO show, you know, you can get a small taste of that documentary. Um, but, you know, we can laugh at that level of hubris, but actually you kind of want to see that. Yeah. You know, you want to see people who really want to change industries, who really want to, you know, change the way things are done and, mm. and do it in a way and at a scale that is, is so meaningful mm. that the impact is going to be profound and therefore, you know, obviously the economic outcome, mm. if one was to get there, is going to be substantial. Yeah, and look, I, I know that you've been a very heavy influential factor uh, with Keno, um, and but this is after that period of time when you've been an investor, enough to see this pattern. How how did you shape or how did you help shape that message and that ambition with Keno, um, so that it would it would sort of kick off with this pattern of, of success that you've seen? Well, look, I think neither Jonathan or Alex have any lack of ambition. And, you know, I, I think as co-founders, um, you know, for me it was important to work with people who had, you know, that level of ambition, you know, whether, whether the company will get there or not, you know, the ambition of Cano is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, to build an end-to-end -end computer company, you know, that, that is hardware, software, services, documentation, e-commerce for less than a few million bucks in Whitechapel is nuts. I mean, it's just silly. And to believe that you can make something that tens or hundreds of millions of people around the world would use is silly as well on the face of it. But, you know, you have to have that, that level of ambition to get out the gates. And I think that's the level of ambition that attracted an investor like Jim Breyer, you know, mm -hmm. to lead the Series A. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you see that with founders like, you know, Kristan Tarvet at uh, TransferWise, you see that with Jose at, at, at Farfetch, you know, you see that with Samir and James and Andrew at Funding Circle, you see that with, you know, Herman, and improbable, you see that with Asmat at, at CityMapper, mm -hmm. you know, there's just like wave after wave, and we're still, still just in London, never mind Daniel Eck, mm -hmm. and you know, uh, the, the, the blah blah guys in, in Paris. I mean, you know, and I think Nicholas and Yanis were at the, at the front end of, of that wave. I mean, I remember you know, being in company meetings where, you know, we would be growing like a couple of hundred thousand down, uh, registered users a day and Nicholas would be like, okay, now how many people are there in the world? Mm. You know, if we keep on at this growth rate, we'll reach every person in the world by X. And you're like, is this guy crazy? Be like, wow, that is so fucking motivating. Mm. Yeah. You know, to feel like you're 20, 30 people in the room and we could build something that 
everyone in the world could use. And yeah. there was like even a two percent chance that, that was possible. Yeah, you know that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, we always like to conclude with giving somebody the opportunity to sort of uh, promote or to to uh, plug something that they're working on. And I, I would think it was very appropriate to talk about Local Globe and what you're doing today. Maybe you can share with the audience kind of both what you're working on, what Local Globe is, and maybe how they can get in touch and, and work with you. Sure. I mean, I mean, honestly, Local Globe has been going for 16 years. So, you know, we've been making my dad and I seed investments primarily in London for about 16 years now in parallel to, you know, the work that we've both been doing for my dad has been a, a lot of his sort of full-time focus, but, you know, all the way back to seeding last minute and then, you know, the, like Zoopla and Secret Escapes and TransferWise and, and, and others, you know, we've been very active seed investors in, in London, occasionally in the US, like companies like SlideShare. Mm. And, and Mashery and, and, and others. And, you know, when I moved on from Index last summer, I think, you know, we both of us kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, London was sort of, if not sort of Silicon Valley 2015, it may be Silicon Valley, you know, 1989. And by that, I mean, it's like, already well established, you know, Silicon Valley by that stage had already had EA, Apple, Cisco, mm. but it hadn't yet had Google, Facebook, Amazon, etc., LinkedIn, Twitter. Mm. And I think, you know, London is now at a point where, you know, we feel really excited and energized, you know, seed, with SeedCamp, obviously, with EF, uh, and just sort of the fact that London has become a sort of a magnet for some of the best founders mm. in the world to come and start and build businesses that by being a London focused seed fund, which is kind of what we've been all along, but actually now to focus on it and to have a fund and a team uh, and an office it is worth it. Mm. And so that's what we did this summer. You know, we raised the fund. It's a forty-five million pound seed fund, uh, which is small by index or Excel standards, but it's a seed fund. So yeah. it's got nothing to do with the sort of the the tier up like index and Excel. Mm. Um, but it's a sizable seed fund uh, for London, and you know we've just continued doing what we've been doing so we've continued making investments and you know we're just doing the same thing we've always done which is looking to invest in those founders that are looking to build really big substantial companies and our goal is really to help people go from you know that sort of 18 to 24 months of sort of seed to the best possible series a and you know, if if entrepreneurs are like water, you know, we see our job as taking the water from the well into the kitchen. Mm. And in the kitchen, you have Index, you have Axel, you have USV, you have Andreessen, you have Sequoia, mm. maybe in the living room or the tiny room, you have mm. DST, you have Vitruvian, and you know, once it's sort of 
got cut glass and ice, you know, you've got Goldman's and Silver Lake, but right. you know, the job of the seed investor is to take the water from the well. Yeah. We know our place, you know, it's sort of that, and that, that sort of 18 months of, of heavy lifting, you know, really working with teams to sort of shape the product and help build the best possible team and make sure by the time they're ready for a series A, uh, from the best funds, you know, we can help them see the world through the eyes of the best funds and, you know, have enough capital and enough preparation that you've got a shot at raising money from an index or a Excel or a, or a USV, mm. which, you know, I, I, I think, well, there are lots of great funds now in, in Europe and in the US, you know, taking an investment from the best investors mm. often materially improves your your chances. Yeah, yeah. So that's what we're doing. Sounds great, sounds great. Well, um, that's how you can get in touch with, with Saul on Twitter. He's at Cape. And uh, Saul, thanks for joining us and uh, for sharing your thoughts and experience with our audience. Thanks, Carlos. Until next time, guys. Bye.